Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 3rd, 2020, and my guest is philosopher and author Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He is the author of The Incerto, his collection of books, Anti-Fragile, The Black Swan, Fooled by Randomness, The Bed of Procrustes, Skin in the Game. This is his ninth appearance on Econ Talk. He was here last in March of 2018, talking about rationality, risk, and skin in the game. Our topic for today is the COVID-19 pandemic. I want to remind listeners, we're recording this during the pandemic. Audio may be below our usual standards. This episode will be released on YouTube with video, we hope. So please go to YouTube and search EconTalk and subscribe. I want to thank Plantronics for providing today's guests with the Plantronics Blackwire 5220 headset. Nassim, welcome back to EconTalk. Yeah, thanks again for inviting me. And one one little detail, I'm not technically a philosopher. I'm uh-huh. just someone interested in probability. So yeah. whatever field uh, um, is attached to that would be my field, but not quite philosophy. But anyway. Well, I like to also call so, you a flaneur, but that's even more flaneur pretentious. Flaneur is my profession. Yeah. My flaneur, you don't have a um, – well, actually, it's, it's pretentious now, but it used to be a quality in Roman time, otium. Yeah. You know, doing nothing. Yeah, or, or not being guided by any uh, uh, constraint. That's that's pretty much what 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 this is about. Yes, and it in your usage of it, it often uh, denotes wandering on foot without a uh, without a purpose. Yeah, but if you if you try to make it productive, you're going to fail. Correct. Anyway, aimlessness is the idea, whether intellectual or uh, physical. I want to begin with a personal reflection. My father, Ted Roberts, used to say that even though there are snakes in the world, it's good to go barefoot so you can feel the grass between your feet, between your toes. That was a statement about trade-offs that he embraced and shared, and I embraced eventually. My dad hated the popular wisdom of what he would consider obsessive safety. He never wore a bike helmet because he liked the feeling of the wind in his hair. My dad taught me that value of trade-offs at a very young age. Uh, but while I am his son, I am Nassim Nicholas Taleb's student. And I learned from you, Nassim, about the risk of ruin. The trade-offs yes, so, become so. relevant when you're out of the game, either literally as in wiped out in gambling or figuratively as in being dead. So being 65, I have been exceptionally cautious over the last few months. Would you say I've done the right thing in responding to the pandemic? Yeah. Okay. So what I'm saying is that what, what, the, the caution and prudence are perfectly compatible with your father's statement. So the central idea is that risks of variation is extremely different from risk of ruin, particularly at the systemic level. Like risk of car accidents doesn't impact uh, whether it goes higher or lower, doesn't make a difference in the risk of ruin for society. The example I gave in anti-fragile at the individual level is if I jump one meter, I'm probably going to get stronger. <laughs> Actually, if I don't jump often, I will uh, get weaker. Sure. But if I jump 20 meters, uh, uh, you know, you'll know what would happen. So okay. there is a difference between uh, uh, 
medium-sized variations at individual level and systemic at uh, the uh, system level. You must survive. And this is uh, something we discussed last time, last chapter of Skin in the Game, which is something about uh, the absorbing barrier that uh, uh, conditional on being here, odds are we, we, there's some properties we didn't have. We are paranoid for uh, large-scale risks and certain classes of risk. And what I've tried to do with my collaborator is uh, figure out what are the systemic risks we should be avoiding, and which is liberating because it allows us to take a lot of risks elsewhere. But do you think that just thinking about myself and my personal risk, not the societal risk, should should I have been extremely cautious as I, in fact, have been during this pandemic? Uh, yes, we, we actually wrote a, a, a thing on it, uh, Joe Norman and myself, as a follow up that uh, even my, my arch enemies, people or people you know who consider themselves my arch enemies liked like uh, Oh, we Sam don't have Harris. to name. We don't have to. No, name no, no, no. Sam, Sam is a nice guy because he went in and said, "Listen, I hate this guy. Hates me. He is my arch enemy." But you know what? You got to read that piece. And in the piece, we follow the following very simple reasoning. It may. It is very selfish for you to not reduce your risk because a contagious disease has different properties. So let me explain. Someone came up with a statistic that. Um, that being hit uh, by car uh, represented much larger risks for people. But at the time, it was true. Uh, then the pandemic. Then the pandemic, then, then, what, then COVID. Uh, but then I said, okay, but if you don't behave conservatively, you will increase that risk dramatically because, because the collective risk doesn't scale linearly from individual risk, unlike other risks that do effectively have some scale transformation. So... If I don't pay attention, the risk will be higher for everybody else. It's just right. like wearing a mask. I wear a mask not for myself, but because a person I'm going to infect will infect maybe 10 more, or, or I mean up to 10 some more, number, maybe up to yeah. 20 more, some number more, maybe on average. Depends, it depends if they sing so, in a choir or go to a urology Yeah, conference. exactly. So so you have you, you, you wear a mask not be to, just to protect yourself, but for the systemic effect. And, and, and very few understand the, different, the, the, the thing. And last time we discussed rationality, we spoke about scaling. Like some things may be perfectly uh, 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 rational for society, but totally irrational for any individual in it. So in the case of wearing a mask, uh, if we all, we'll get to masks in more detail because I, I, we've come to a moment in American history deeply depressing to me where uh, wearing a mask has become a partisan ideological issue rather than a scientific issue. But, but the point is, is that wearing a mask is, uh, has external effects that are beneficial. It's like being a nice person. Uh, you bear a very small cost that is uncomfortable and hot. And in, by doing so, you, you reduce the chances that you are asymptomatically spreading a deadly disease to potentially, as you say, dozens of people. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so it becomes a, a, a duty sometimes to act against your own interest. A moral imperative. Yeah. It's a moral imperative. Um, and masks are the cheapest. I mean, think about it. You're, you're inflicting economic, huge economic cost by not wearing a mask because uh, I've computed a few things about convexity of masks. 
and errors made by bureaucrats initially because initially the World Health Organization, the CDC, and all these people were against mask wearing. Yeah. And we said that two things they did not figure out. The first nonlinearity, the first one is they didn't think, that, again, they don't scale. They did not think that if I wear a mask and you wear a mask, we're not reducing the risk by P, the protection by a mask, but by P square. <laughs> Yeah. You see, so uh, the uh, so the idea. So, for example, if I have fifty percent probability of, of of being infected wearing a mask, and and you have fifty percent, the total would be point two five. So, but there's another thing people did not pick up, and and we saw it in a lot of papers, and, and that is even more central, is that if I reduce the viral load by half, I don't necessarily decrease the probability of infection by half. I may decrease it by 99%. Right. And there may be a, a threshold level. A threshold level. I, I, there's an S-curve. So if you're if you're in the in a left side of the S-curve, it must be that you're convex. Because everything is convex initially and then concave at the end. So that's the nature of the S-curve. So the, they, these are the things that were missed by people who uh, analyzed masks initially, scientifically. I mean, they just looked at viral load reduction. So back in January of this year, January 26th, uh, you wrote a paper with uh, Yanir Baryam and um, Joe Norman uh, warning about the pandemic. And uh, it got some attention. But if you were in your shoes then, look, looking back at that moment, which was in America, nobody really was paying any attention to this. What were you hoping would happen when you wrote that that paper. What were you? Uh, what were you? Besides raising an alarm, which you okay. did. Okay. No, no, no. Uh, two things, uh, and and uh, and it was depressing uh, that that we had to do that. Uh, our team was basically monitoring for pandemics because, in my opinion, they are the fattest tails, and fat tails means that these things can really go out of control. And we haven't had many pandemics in history, but we've had you know very lethal ones. And and is an exist, they represent an existential risk, and we knew that. So you have to stop some things in the egg when it's cheap to do so. And uh, when Ebola uh, started, the people were not uh, reacting to it properly. They were comparing uh, a process uh, that is multiplicative to uh and and uh, to risks that were uh in a gaussian distribution so here we had fat tailed risk ebola or any pandemic versus uh people dying in their swimming pool people falling from ladders and stupidities like that rare compare. events yeah but you cannot compare these two because one is multiplicative and then the other one follows what i call chernoff bound yeah, when I fall so, into when I fall into when I drown in my bathtub, you don't drown in your bathtub. As a that, exactly, exactly. So they're not multiplicative. And then the way to look at it is they have extreme value properties that are very different. If I tell you a billion people died, you know they did not die drowning in their bathtub. So uh, in, in any given year, whereas if you know if if I tell you a billion people uh, you know died, try to guess, odds are it's going to be either a nuclear war or a pandemic. More likely to be a pandemic. It's actually fattest tales. So just to alert people to the nature of pandemics, that's the thing we have to worry about the most. 
and uh, and we failed during Ebola because people kept using, especially psychologists, rationality arguments, and 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 our uh, argument was twofold: one, the multiplicative notion, and the second one is that rationality point that I just made, that rationality doesn't scale. So and and this is completely absence uh, of absent the, the fat tailedness and the scaling are absent from the decision science literature, which effectively makes people uh, doing the right thing look like they're uh, irrational. Right, and no one wants so, to look irrational. Exactly. So, and and what the 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 the, the literature coming out of you know the that tradition of rationality and all of that is completely bogus. So. We knew that from the Ebola uh, days uh, four or five years ago, and we were waiting for the next pandemic. And sure enough, we saw the sign and in January. And in then China. we, in China, and, and uh, at the same time, I started studying a little bit, you know, history uh, in preparation for a paper that came out in Nature Physics with uh, Chirillo, showing effectively that pandemics are a fattest tailed thing. You, you know, and then you got to kill them in the egg. So, uh, so in preparation, I read some history, and I discovered that effectively uh, the uh, Eurasia—I mean, let's call it the, the old world, let's call it Eurasia—dealt with pandemics in a very effective way. It was part of the economics of the time, because it, so for you know the people uh, when they talk about plague think that it's an instant phenomenon that killed a lot of people disappeared. Uh, we had two plagues: the first one, the Justinian's plague, and then the second one is uh, what is commonly known as uh, the, the the major plague in Europe in the thirteen hundred in the thirteenth century, thirteen hundreds, fourteenth century, thirteenth fourteenth century. And people have the illusion that hey, you know, it came. In fact, no, the previous plague stayed. And it was accelerated by commerce along the Silk Road, and, you know, as can be expected. Commerce brings germs, and uh, and it was and people adapted to it because the plague stayed there for three hundred years. And to give you an example of of what happened mm. in seventeen twenty, a ship left Smyrna with merchandise coming from the east. You know, Smyrna and now in Turkey at the time, you know, in Ottoman Empire, Eastern, you know, was a, considered the Levant at the time, went through uh, what is now Lebanon, Cyprus, went to Genoa. The, 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 the Genovese uh, didn't let it in because they had something called Lazaretto, which was a quarantine for all ships was, when, when they suspected the plague. It was enforced. Talking seventeen around seventeen twenty, the ship was owned by the mayor of Marseille. <laughs> Wasn't okay, and he bypassed the quarantine rules. Half the population of Marseille perished. You mean of Genoa? No, Genoa. Marseille. Genoa refused it. Oh, <laughs> okay, because they were smart. So oh, you think about it. Went to Marseille. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it went to Marseille. Genoa. So you think about it. That was the mechanism. Mechanism: a ship comes in, you have suspicions, you don't take chances. You refuse the ship. Wow. And the cities, and you look at it, during the Black Death or that period, uh, when, when, when they, they uh, uh, some cities uh, shut down. They did not accept any uh, foreigner or any outsider. And even the residents coming back had to go to Lazarettos or the, the equivalent of quarantine. So quarantine was a built-in. 
It's a standard operating procedure. procedure. Standard yeah. operating procedure activated whenever people suspected something. And the Ottoman Empire, you see the Ottoman Empire, had a, uh, a border with the Habsburg at the time. And whenever you cross from one to the other, you're quarantined. And I, it's worth pointing out that quarantine is its root is Italian or Latin, which is 40. And so 40, I think exactly. these people 40 were days. around. 40 days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, which was a pretty serious. We do two two weeks here in, in modern times, but but still two weeks work. I mean, two weeks is good enough. I mean, whatever a reduction of connectivity is very good. So, but what happened is that you have to realize, and this is something I saw when writing the Black Swan, that we have more connectivity today than we did before. So therefore, things that are multiplicated would be vastly more multiplicated today, and you'd have more of a winner take all, just like we have economic winner take all with Google, thanks to technology. Uh, I, I noticed Pavarotti, for example, the singer, the opera singer, because you had the television, okay, he really… And the radio. Uh, and I mean, radio, the albums, yeah. CDs, yeah. No, no, but yeah, so, so you had, uh, particularly for opera, where you need the visual, he, you had a winner-take-all effect where a few opera singers were making uh, hundreds of millions of dollars and the rest were starving or working for uh, Starbucks or singing at a birthday parties. So you have the same concentration, the same thing would happen with diseases that you would have a winner-take-all disease taken over the planet, and we have super-spreader events that cause even more fat tails. To give you an example, uh, a urology conference in, um, in Las Vegas, and uh, in this case, what, what, what happens in Las Vegas doesn't stay in Las Vegas. gets mm-hmm. redistributed to 200 countries. So yeah. people come in, they get something, and then they distribute it. So that you did not have... Uh, on a Silk Road. It was much slower, 30 kilometers a day maximum, you see. And it was, and, and because you had that barrier of religion between the Ottoman Empire and the what's considered now as Western Europe, uh, because you had that barrier, it was, it was not, uh, it was porous, but not as porous as the world is today. So you have, you, you don't have natural uh, limits to things. So back in January, when you were warning about this risk, of course, it hasn't taken over the planet exactly. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. It's been, you know, obviously devastating in different degrees, in different places. But what do you think we should have done in January? And the right way to phrase that is when the next pandemic hits, when we get COVID-23 instead of COVID-19, what's the right response at the national level well, and then at the state well, level, okay. the we local wanted, level, and the personal level? We wanted uh, uh, systematic uh, quarantines because, you know, the fact of having quarantine from people coming from China is, is foolish not n- knowing that they can come from somewhere else, okay? Yeah. So, and effectively, Europe. they came from somewhere else. Yeah. And, and the Chinese, actually. And then also, you want to have the World Health Organization removed. It's a bureaucratic organization that has been devastating for mankind and by because of its incompetence they prevented people from wearing masks now they've said so, late since then the cdc did the same thing uh yeah they have since confessed that they did that at least this is what they're saying now that they did that because they're worried about a shortage so they lied to people if that's lied, true yeah, degraded the quality and credibility of their organization <laughs> and Resulted no, no, in it's, no, no. It's it's not just that they lied; they're incompetent. They can't. They didn't understand the compounding. Well, maybe. Yeah. See, and the other thing also, they did not realize that uh, uh, you know they're bureaucrats. In their opinion, only the government can make masks. 
Yeah, they did was... not realize that there is a market that the minute you tell people, hey, we you know wear masks, that people would 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 find stuff in their uh, closets that would sure <laughs> work perfectly as a barrier, and 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 we wouldn't be here. Almost I, when I think today, I, I, I we thought of the mask situation late in the game. Initially, we were you know we bought the argument that it was not transmitted uh, uh and, and, and you you know by that mode we thought it was it was contagious but, but very quickly we figured out the mass situation when taiwan you got a statistical hint there why is it that taiwan that has a lot of traffic from uh, uh wubai from wuhan was well, wuhan was completely uh, spared and it's claimed that Hong Kong has been completely spared as well, despite its travel. And, and look at the mass situation. So, so you you start getting statistical hints, and, and then of course we like the convexity argument and realize immediately that they missed it. So it's very embarrassing. But that's not the point. The idea you said that, you said missed it. I thought you meant missed it, like because uh, of the okay. of the <laughs> virus. But you meant yeah. missed it. Yeah. Sorry, missed it. And 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 then also there's something they cannot. They said, well, there's no evidence masks work. Don't use them. They cannot. I'm get still hearing the it. Difference. People are still saying I mean, it. Yeah, there's no evidence. Mask works. Hence, wear it. We don't know if you don't know. The whole idea of the inserto, the, the the central idea of the inserto, is that when you have uncertainty in a system, it makes your decision making much much easier, rather than harder. It seems than harder. harder. Yeah, it seems. Let me give you an example. This water. If I tell you, well, I'm not certain about the quality of this water, what would you do? Would you drink it? Uh, no. Okay, very good. Okay, very simple. I tell you, I'm not uh, very uh, – we have uncertainty about uh, the pilot's skills. He could be excellent or he or she or he could be excellent. Pilot or But, yeah. okay, we're not sure. We have uncertainty. What do you do, right? Well, you, you get up. You only no. You get on the plane for a while. I mean, that the reason I like this example is that you know if, if there's a one percent risk that the water has the bubonic plague in it, you don't drink one percent of it and thinking, well, it's probably yeah, less exactly. than one percent. It's probably go. good. There you go. There you we just go. don't drink it. You go to zero. You go to the corner. We call it. There, there you go. And people behave that way. And we're gonna see. We're gonna you know we're gonna see how people's built-in uh, uh, you know uh, instinct is vastly superior to what the CDC had, what a lot of scientists, to what uh, these uh, decision-making uh, professors, uh, the nudge uh, group in in in, uh, in the UK. All these people are completely incompetent when it comes to basic things that your grandmother gets. Yeah, your, your grandmother's right often. Uh, uh, this instant helped us get here. Yeah. Otherwise, okay. we, if she weren't right, we wouldn't exactly. be here. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There we go. Uh, so this, um, I want to talk about masks for a minute because what, what I found fascinating about it as uh, uh, in thinking about these kind of issues of risk generally, if you tell people um, that if you wear a seatbelt, you might drive less carefully, they laugh at you. They say, oh, Nobody pays attention to that. That's ridiculous. But those same people, for some reason, when we started to suggest that wearing masks was a good, were good, was a good idea, oh, no, no, no. There's all these other effects. You, you might touch your face more. Uh, you might yeah. think you're safer than you really are, which is like the seatbelt argument. And my view was, uh, you know, they said it's not scientific. There no, there's no evidence. There are no studies. There's no clinical data on mask wearing. And I'm thinking, why is clinical data the only kind of evidence that okay. is acceptable so, so yeah <laughs> so absurd. after 20 years of working with uncertainty 
yeah, more than 20 years, of course, but 20 years yeah. of start, uh, publishing uh, yeah. into it. I, I finally wrote a piece that has a sentence that summarizes everything I struggled to explain. In my debate with uh, John Ioannidis, I came up with a sentence. Science is not about evidence. Science is about properties. It's not Explain. about a single forecast. So Explain. science is about understanding something. So it's not about details. Like for example, if you have absence of evidence, right? You it's still scientific to describe a process. That, so, that this, this virus goes in your nose and if and it comes out of your nose. So if you cover your nose and the guy yeah. across you covers his nose, maybe it'll reduce the I mean that just exactly. seems it is scientific. It's scientific to say let's wear masks because if your decision if you map your decision making abilities and and your uh, or, or or the decision making sorry uh, uh, rational, rationale in a scientific way then you would get uh, uh, you would get results that are very formal but there this uh, naive evidence based science is not there in sophistication yet to grasp that and and we wrote it in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a detail about uh, forecasting like science hey, is not about forecasting single events science is about understanding the properties of stuff let's which talk about may that or may not include forecasting Yo, but one second i just want to add this this famous sort of onion like example which is uh, there's no clinical data on whether it's unsafe to jump from an airplane without a parachute at 35,000 feet. Yes. This, right? So when someone says, should you put on a parachute or not? You could say, well, there's no evidence that it helps. But we understand gravity. We understand logic. And we would understand yeah. that you don't need a clinical study. And, and, and you understand asymmetry. You understand asymmetry. And this is what, what I'm saying is that integrating in your decision-making rigorous science includes taking into account the asymmetry, the payoff asymmetry, is that a, a, the harm you're going to get from wearing a parachute is vastly inferior, potentially, Correct. than the benefits you may get for it. That's it. Simple. Right. It's the same with the mask, right? The mask is a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little bit hot. It costs $8. Yeah. It's a bargain. It what do you mean it costs $8? You can, you can make masks for uh, 45 yeah, cents. cents. Using, yeah. using, listen, coffee filters work. Yeah, you can also, uh, I used, I've probably mentioned this before, get on, get on YouTube and Google uh, or search for sock, mask, scissors, and you'll find a way to make a mask just with a pair of scissors and a so single sock. It's phenomenal. Yes. So let's talk about forecasting because, you know, the uh, a lot of people have lost uh, some unfortunate um, credibility that because they made, they picked numbers. They said, you know, yeah. famous example in England, uh, Neil Ferguson, not my colleague at Hoover, the other Neil Ferguson, yes. uh, said that uh, up to 2 million people could die from the pandemic. And you could argue, well, that's not, that was okay because he said up to, which is meaningless, of course, it doesn't mean anything. It just means it could be really bad, which it could have been. And you could argue it was important for him to scare people into being more cautious. And that was the, the payoff for this was that people became more careful when they heard that number. So what's wrong with making a forecast like that? Okay, I'm sharing a screen with you here okay. and a paper uh, that 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 started with a debate with uh, Ioannidis. This is John Ioannidis, who's a John Ioannidis, past uh, econ talk guest who I, I'm very fond of, and we may yeah, hear from I, him. I used to be fond of him. Uh, well, we we'll, may uh, hear from him down the road. Go ahead. Let's see the okay. let's see the image. So, <laughs> uh, his uh, the 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 title is on single point forecasts for fat tailed variables, 
And let me explain it uh, very simply and, and explain why science is not about forecasting as people think. Sometimes it's about forecasting, but not necessarily so. Uh, you see this graph here. I have a probability distribution that is very skewed. Actually, it's not an unusual probability distribution. It's a common log normal, which is not the, the, the worst. I mean, there's worse. Right? And for those listening to audio only, I'm gonna, we're going to describe this in a minute, but okay. without the graph. But carry on. Carry the, on average is sli- the average is slightly above seven. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. And the uh, variable. You, the variable. Uh, you only observe the average uh, 15% of the time. <laughs> something above the average, okay? Uh, 85% of the observation fall below the average, okay? And and what's worse is that 50% of the observation fall below one, which is like 13% of the average. So the averages, for those not listening at home, now, what's, the reason I love this image yes. and your discussion of it is that it highlights something important that I've learned from you, which is, most of our casual, non-real, academic explorations of risk are based around classroom exercises like flipping a coin. And flipping a coin or the distribution of um, height in the United States, uh, these are what are approximated by normal distributions where most of the events occur around the middle, around the mean. So if you flip a coin a thousand times, you're going to get between 400 and 600 heads most of the time. Uh, you could get 700, but it'll be rare. You could get 300. That'll be rare. But the point of this kind of distribution, it doesn't look anything like a normal distribution. And if you bring your intuition from the normal distribution into this picture, you're going to make some horrible mistakes. So just to repeat, in this case, the, the mean, the average outcome is, is, is 7 but as you uh, said, more seven, more, a little more than seven. A little more than seven. But 50% of the time, it's going to be less than one. <laughs> okay. And so that's because, so, and let's just to make it clear, that's because it has a long tail to the right. And you're going to get outliers relatively often, unlike the case of, of flipping a coin, where you can't get more than 1,000 heads and 1,000 tosses, or height. You can't get anybody over, say, 7.5 feet tall. In wealth or other just things that are distributed, risk of a pandemic, death rate, okay, you can so, have big so, numbers. Yes, but now I have a second graph to show you, which is going to depress you. Okay. Or, or not, or, or maybe, you know, uh, I think that understanding uncertainty makes me happy because I know there are not that many risks out there. I just worry about yeah. those. And that makes it also makes you feel tailed. It also makes you feel smart, Nassim. You've got to exactly. confess so, that. Pa- uh, pandemics are vastly more fat tailed. Okay, so in this case, the average for this distribution, if it exists, assuming it exists, will come from one observation. <laughs> so you can have a million observations, one will determine the average. Meaning, explain that, I don't understand. Meaning, okay, so fat-tailed means, like if you take the wealth in America, you realize that uh, 1% of Americans own 50% of the wealth. Okay. Okay, and 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 it gives you contribution by outliers that, that can be monstrous. Like Jeff Bezos is wealthier than I don't know the bottom hundred million American, two hundred million, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. Okay. So the uh, the uh, the the concentration it is uh, concentrated. Uh, the these pandemics have effects that are very very concentrated in the sense that 
one observation will determine, uh, unlike the log normal that we saw earlier, which gave us the intuition, 85% of the observations are above the average. In this case, only one single observation is above the average. One. One. And what's, why is that important? It's important to realize that you can't work with averages and you cannot work with forecasting. There are techniques from extreme value theory where you can understand perfectly what's going on, have a representation of reality. So you, let me try to put you, this in yeah. every... Let, let, let me... If, uh, you have a representation of reality, but it's not describable by an average, nor can it be captured by testing people's forecasting. All right, so let, let's... Um, so. Let's go take out the screen sharing. For, let's go back to you and me. I want to okay. try to explore this. Okay. So let's talk about why this is important. If if I'm a um, an expert and you're doing a coin flipping uh, exhibition and I, you're going to ca- toss a coin a thousand times and I'm called in to ask, what's my forecast? So I say, well, I think he's going to get about 500 and I'm going to be in the ballpark. Exactly, I'm gonna, because I'm going to be in the ballpark. Exactly. What you just described, parentheses, is the law of large numbers. Yeah, right. It does work for thin tail distributions. So if you have large enough a sample or large enough a, rep- a repetition, you can figure out what's going on. So the another way to say it, and again, to put it into folksy terms that I also got from you, is that you, you care about, you don't care about the average depth of the river. You care if you're going to walk across it and you, and you can't swim. You care about the where it is deepest. And if the average is three feet high, but there was a large stretch where it's 60 feet deep and you're going to die, that's what you care about, not the average. And here you're saying that if the average death rate from this pandemic forecast, which is based on a zillion assumptions also, is a million people, that that, pr- that prediction is essentially meaningless because there's no exactly. sense in which we, there's so many factors that are going to determine where we are on the, on the distribution that aren't going to be subject to the law of large numbers. Exactly. So in other words, if, if the real average uh, that can come from pandemics is something like 2 billion, more or 3 billion, right? Okay. Uh, 99% of the time, you will observe something under a million. Right. Okay. So that the, which, mean- which, is why, which is why we should not forecast numbers. That's the first reason why a single point forecast is highly unscientific, naive, what I call naive, uh, uh, thinky toy, uh, statistical approaches. So, okay. Say that again. Yes, go Let's go back to that example because I yes. think it really helps people. Yes. Uh, so the, the mean, the, ex, the expected value, the average, yes. you, you, yes. you run a simulation, the equivalent of a simulation, and you run 100 plagues and you find out that the mean number of deaths is is a billion. Yes. And, and that's because there's there's some... There's a few times when it's five billion and seven billion, and there's a lot of times when it's quite low. Exactly. And then it then it becomes the actual event occurs, and the because people are cautious or for whatever reason, we get a good draw from the urn, and the death rates maybe only a million. Yeah, it's not necessarily because people are cautious. It's mostly largely because diseases, even COVID. We think we know something about it. We know nothing because yeah. it can mutate. Sometimes it can start uh, mildly. We classify as pandemic that have fat tails. Events that have killed more than a thousand people. But the point is that is that. So, if, so let me let me tell you why this is important. It means ahead. that you don't have to worry about anything that hasn't killed yet a thousand people. See, we, we we separate the classes. Something that has not killed like every time you know you have a virus in town, it doesn't matter. It does not minute, matter. It doesn't matter. You don't have to worry. The minute it kills, it's in the category that. 
you know, has killed more than a thousand people, then you have to worry about that. Because it could be a fat tail monster. From... It is a fat tail monster. But it could be a monster that, that could kill a exactly. billion. It can, it, you have to kill it in the egg. But, or but as I want, you're approaching a thousand, yes. I want to get at this point about the naivete and unscientific nature of, of these forecasts. Yes. Somebody who says, I have, I have simulated this, the mean number of deaths is a billion. Then the actual thing happens and only 100,000 people die. You don't want to say he's, he might be an idiot, but you don't want to say he's an idiot because it was an inaccurate forecast. That's exactly he's the say, point. So, he's a, he's a, you're saying he's an idiot because you cannot I would say it differently. Exactly. Expected doesn't mean an average, don't mean typical here. <laughs> we, exactly. So we, we run said, those words together. We said, exactly. We said, you're an idiot to forecast, and he's an idiot to critique, critique your forecast. Right. Okay. <laughs> so this great. is what we said in the paper. And we said one thing we said, science is not about accounting, it's not yeah. bean counting. Yeah. Science is about understanding a, a phenomenon. The process. Now, the second thing I would say, uh, uh, is that effectively we, the, the, some people have abandoned completely that uh, naive forecasting and, and study properties in risk management very effectively. The Dutch, the, because you know it's a country, it's a low country. So they are worried about the level of the water. They're not interested in the average. They're interested in the maxima. Yeah. Okay, and then there's a whole science of extrema coming from statistics, applied in insurance, applied in uh, risk management, applied in finance, applied in, in many fields extremely successfully that look at what robust claims you can make about the maxima. And that's the one I used in my paper with Chirillo. We used exactly how they, you know, how they, you know, the same techniques used for. Uh, for uh, the maximum, uh, the expected maximum, or the average maximum, which is different from the average and different from the maximum uh, uh, water level, we applied, and, and of course we modified it. We had to find robust tricks. Uh, it was complicated. But over the years, we developed a technique to deal with extreme value theory applied to some classes of phenomena, namely wars, and the fattest of fat tales of all, pandemics. So when we started warning about pandemics in January, it was not a cry, a cry wolf uh, uh, variety. We told them, don't worry about anything else. Just worry about these things, things that are multiplicated, particularly pandemics, and here's the evidence. So we were, it's not like, uh, uh, you, oh, uh, people were supplying us with arguments. Oh, if we listen to you, you know, you never make money. You, you stay home. Stay all home all day. Yeah. No, 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 no. The entire point of the precautionary principle is to replicate what that old trader told me. Which is what? Take all the risks you want, but make sure you're in tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Which is which is how Goldman Sachs, taking a lot of risks, have survived so far 161 years. Don't See? don't don't eat the nest egg. Don't, don't go into make it. sure make sure you survive. Which is the the the, the a lot of people. Uh, hopefully, you'll invite uh, Oli Peters, uh, people who worked on ergodicity, uh, uh, standard economics. Uh, you know, has flaws in it because they don't take into account this absorbing barrier. Yeah, the, the so the, there is a um, the other thing I I think you've emphasized over the years, which I find very um, helpful, is that. A lot of modeling takes place because it's convenient, not because it's right. And 
dealing with expected value, which is the average, is easy. And so we yeah, do a lot of it. We're not against modeling. There are parameters of for fat tail distribution that are very robust. We're not against modeling. We're against naive modeling. It doesn't mean that because you have a model that is right, but on the other hand, it doesn't mean that, that mathematics cannot be used effectively and rigorously to capture empirical phenomena. You just have to be very careful. And the interesting thing that I just wrote this uh, this book, and uh, actually it's it's out today. Okay, the statistical consequences of fat tails. Fantastic and, bedside reading, I suspect, for people yes, who have trouble okay. falling like asleep. A, it's a, a technical of, book, of, right? Yes, yes, very technical. It's sort of the, it's the technical inserto. I have the inserto for the what I call the philosophical literary books, and this you know is sort of like a backup that i've been writing over the years and and the first volume is out so the, today and uh, and the the entire message of the inserto is that a lot of things that people claim you know come out of statistical models don't come out of statistical models see like for example uh, uh, linear regression you cannot do it with fat tails so it's not science. To they violate when you violate fundamental mathematical rules. It's not science anymore. Well, to me, that's See? like the insight of you know Ed Lemer in his book in his essay we've talked about here before. Let's take let's take the con out of a con uh, metrics exactly exactly where he's basically saying that if you're constantly trying different variations of the models um, of what variables you include. You can't use the standard statistical significance test because you violated the underlying assumptions well, under which they were that, generated. That's, that's one of them. So I, I went through like 18 violations by saying that, for example, you cannot do linear regression if you don't have the uh, uh, satisfy the Gauss-Markov theorem. I, I didn't come up with that theorem. You're using that theorem as justification. Uh, uh, st- uh, psychologists use uh, correlation. They cannot use correlation when you have nonlinear uh, uh, effects, for example, because it's well known to be a linear coefficient of linear association and, and stuff like that. And then you go deeper with the principal components analysis, factor analysis. So the idea is is that they are violating the rules of statistical inference. But I want to talk a little bit about fat tails uh, and pandemics to, to make it a little clearer. Um, let me see if I understand you correctly. I hear you saying the following, because you 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 corrected me at one point. You said, well, it's not necessarily how people behave. Uh, a pandemic of pandemics is one that is more infectious, more fatal, etc. So we often don't know those characteristics of the virus when it's, when it's spreading. So to get that tragic You can catas- tell very quickly. You can but tell the, catastro- quickly. the catastrophic far-tail outcome of one billion dead... When when do we need to worry about that? Is that because it'll be a particular? A okay, for, for, we, we've tested. There's a magic number, whatever it is. But the minute, it, I mean, it could be 200, 300 people. But we said, okay, as a heuristic, let's study the class of those that have killed more than a thousand people in today's population equivalent in history. Right, but but COVID nineteen okay. yes. doesn't kill young people much, or if hardly at but all. It killed, it, it killed more than a thousand people. I understand. Plus, no, no, no. Not, it's not that true. First of all, we know nothing about COVID nineteen. We're what five months into the 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 thing, yeah, and, and most maybe. infected people were infected recently because it's still growing. And you have about what five hundred thousand people died today, 
Um, so far. So, so far. So we, you know, there's one thing, one thing we're going to make. We know nothing about morbidity. Nothing. Explain. About Explain. Okay. 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 When, when you get sick, okay, you come out of a disease. Sometimes you get, you come out of it stronger, but in some cases you have side, uh, oh, I see some, what you're saying. some effects either of the treatment or the disease itself. You would survive, but your lungs are damaged and you're going to live much A lot shorter. of young people have damaged lungs. We don't we know. Don't know. Well, we don't know. We don't know. The whole idea is we know nothing. Uh, we know very little about COVID today. So the it's lesson then. Now, till now that they started treating it differently from res- respiratory uh, thing. Now they understand that there could be some autoimmune effects uh, and reactions. So you cannot rule out the effect on young people. And what I'm thinking is that we've had some scary diseases, Ebola, SARS, et cetera, and not that many people died. And I think it lulled people, like myself, into a false sense of security. Oh, these things are overblown. It's not so bad. You understood and your co-authors understood. That's the wrong way to think about it. What was I missing? Was this one? Is this? Did this one kill a lot more people because we didn't react correctly? Because it's a different kind of virus. Okay, no, we, we we all okay. The idea that you should treat, as we warned in January, absolutely all pandemics the same way. Okay. The minute they kill, and the reason we use the number kill, because you have a lot of pandemics that are uh, not uh, uh, consequential like the common cold, they're not consequential. And uh, they're not, so you should treat them all as something that can potentially mutate and, and once you enter that class. But the uh, one thing that people don't realize is that you, in hindsight, of course, you know what happened. You know that Ebola was not a big deal. You right. know that SARS was not a big deal in hindsight. In foresight, when you're standing facing uncertainty, you should behave according to a protocol. What is my protocol here? The protocol is we have something to take seriously. And and, and let's find ways to pull out of it. One thing I question is that people who uh, believe that uh, uh, fighting the pandemic is costing us money. It's not fighting the pandemic that's costing money. It's a pandemic. And, And let me explain. If you're rational, would you go? Would you go to a restaurant in New York City? No. Would you go to a bar? Uh, no. You would not go to a bar. No. Okay. All right. So. Well, I, I would uh, if I would if I wore a mask. The other person wore a mask. Well, I didn't okay, stand okay, talking okay, to him for twenty minutes. Okay. So all right. So as a bar, that be having to to, to wear a, a mask bar. inside. Okay. So. So what killed? I say New I York say that w- because I was at a brewery yesterday outside. In the countryside, that's fine. Wearing a mask, but yeah. Yeah, no, no, okay. When we we don't know what's going on in the beginning, we don't know what's going on. So so people have risk aversion. They don't want to get on a plane uh, that may has 1% probability of crashing or an unknown probability of crash. Right. So it's people have that aversion. And all it takes in New York City for some restaurants is a drop of 20% in revenues. That's all it takes for them to go bust. Sure. They're already on a so, thin so, margin so, anyway. Exactly. Almost Everybody all of them. working on such a thin margin. And, and I read a statement by the uh, chairperson of Delta, you know, saying, hey, take care of the clients. They only make money. They said the, the, the plane is full. We only make money on the last four passengers. Mm. <laughs> 
So there you go. Would I get on a plane? No. Uh, now, now, now I would, but of course. So you realize that a lot of the economic contraction that we have result in, is a result of uncertainty. It's fear. No, it's mostly it's fear. fear. It's fear, fear and uncertainty, and we didn't know much about it. And that's the major cause of economic contraction. So you cannot really, you know, posit a trade-off between government shutdown and, and, and the, and the, the Not so important. We shut it down. Most people shut down themselves. We shut ourselves yeah, down of course, of course. because I we're mean, afraid. And rationally I, so is your point. But by, what I want to I come back to this understanding yes. about risk because why would, why is any, this might have been different. We might not have had much of an effect. What was different about this one Relative to Ebola and it was not it was not different. Why is it spread so much more? Why is it so more de- so much more deadly? Is it the virus itself? Ebola had some different characteristics, but you 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 couldn't tell about this one uh, at the time, and we still can't tell about this one because both this and Ebola can change. Ebola kills uh, people faster. And more effectively, it kills a high number of carriers. Okay, this one doesn't. So this is you know, but things can change. Right. You but see, your point is that it could change here and with Ebola. You can't you can't really say, okay, let's not worry about Ebola because it's gonna kill enough people before they you know uh spread. Before they, they they spread to others, so therefore it's a good disease. You you don't know. You should treat them all the same way. That was my idea, is that all of them and we don't have to worry too much about pandemics. Because we have to have a good mechanism. So we're gonna to come to that, but I, I want yes. I wanna just put a uh, a a um a period at the end of this of, of this piece of the conversation, because I think I understand it better, which is to come back to your point about statistical characteristics, you would be an idiot or a fool to look at past pandemics and say, well, they really didn't kill so many people, so I'm not worried. Your point is, is that that past experience is not predictive. The average of the past 12 pandemics is a poor predictor of what to do to expect to the next one. Exactly. That's what we told the, uh, the you know, the epidemiologist, uh, and, 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 you know, we had an impactful uh, paper, uh, Trillo and I, because it was presenting things that physicists understood, mathematicians could grasp, but epidemiologists, not so much, you see. And then it's a mathematician who helped spread our message, not the, the epidemiologist, that, that about the fat tailness of the process and that why you should take it seriously. You should take all fat tail processes seriously. Let, let me tell you, we have, an, we have, we spend a trillion dollars in America, okay, about give or take a hundred billion or so, no, on defense directly and indirectly. Okay. Okay. So it means that we are not willing to gamble with uh, certain things with our security. You right. Agree? Okay. Yep. So, so you, you may you may argue, as I do often, that the, the, this is causes uh, you know us to uh, you know. Uh, Causes more instability in the world and stuff like that. Consequences, and, and that yeah. Okay, this has consequences, and, and that it's not probably in our best interest to have, you know, anyway. But the point is, we spend that money. We don't have to spend as much for pandemics, and pandemics are vastly more dangerous than wars. So, what's the protocol? You said we should just follow the same protocol so with every one of them. Mechanism for quarantine, reduction of, uh, and identify super spreaders. You don't have to lock down things. In this case, it's very easy. Super spreaders were subways, elevators, 
and uh, big uh, big uh, gatherings like the, the weddings. Trump convention. Yeah, the Trump convention, <laughs> for yeah. example. Trump rally. Okay. Political Trump rallies. rallies. Yeah. yeah, political rallies. Okay, so so where where uh, and then if you have masks, then you can mitigate. You okay? So, okay, let's have uh, you, you know you can attend the game, and everybody should wear masks. You know, because now we understand that open air. But but when you don't know, you have quarantines and elimination of super spreaders until we figure out what's going on. And how, my complaint, I have a yes. few, but one of my complaints is that we don't know much about what's going on even right now. And, and the, one of the key roles for the government to me should be gathering information so that we can make good decisions about what's risky and what isn't risky. We don't have good testing mechanisms. The government did on an atrocious job in exactly. the United States. So, so there we go. So we we spent a trillion dollars on weaponry, uh, nuclear warheads. You can destroy, uh, you know, Russia, or you can destroy any country you want a uh, hundred times. But we we are not still not able to have proper testing and or proper uh, uh, quarantine. But quarantining is tricky, right? So in China, in China, as far as I understand it, they used basically the military and said, you know, you get the disease. They stopped people at checkpoints. They took temperature. They did testing. You don't have to go that far. The 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 the, the what quarantining the, the, would you support? No, I mean, I would quarantine. Uh, listen, the federal government job is not domestic quarantine; is international travel. At least check people coming in, right? Yeah, they, they were they were not checking people. Still I mean, not doing it, I assume. Oh, still not doing it. Okay, check people coming in. That's that's what they do. And then you quarantine people who are in suspicious cases. And states should probably do the same. You're you're allowed to block New York City and say, okay, if you you know we can check you, like some Italian towns have done. This is the victory of localism, because it showed that, and, and just like the the plague, the plague was a victory of localism. Some towns fared a lot better than others, and here some states will fare better than others. But the, 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 the idea that it costs you money is bogus because you can do it at very cheap costs. Well, it does cost you money, but there's different ways, there's different amounts depending on what you choose. Yeah, exactly. No, it, it, it does cost you money, and, and, but I don't think it should uh, – now we're going to adapt to an economic life that, that, that is adapted to these things, I think. And, How will it change? Way, what do you think will it, change? And we're we're anti-fragile. I mean, we learned from this. It's like when a plane crashes, probably another plane crashes, drops. Uh, I think uh, the odds of uh, you know uh, us suffering uh, from the big one, because this is not the big one, by the way. A big one can be some antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria yeah. coming out of hospital, something crazy. So uh, now we know how to handle it. Are you confident how about – how confident are you about that? So I, would, I am very confident. And, and the fact that you and I are doing Zoom now, something yeah. you never wanted before, no. Okay, is a testimony to the change of times and how we're adapting. And we're, 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 some people are better off. Like we have this conference, the Real World Risk Institute conference, and we're going to be able to accommodate many people who could not afford to come spend a week in sure. New York. And we right. never thought of it before, of doing something right. online. Uh, the, the university system, 
is going to adapt to it and it'd be a lot cheaper to get education because you can stay in India and, and get a class from any uh, yeah. uh, uh, person in the world. So there are things that the adaptation is leading, as, as you know, the economy likes stressors, leading to beautiful uh, somewhere, adaptation somewhere. And then, of course, some industries are suffering, but not too many industries are suffering. The industries oh. that are suffering are uh, travel, the travel Inter- and uh, tourism, and, yeah. and, 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 and even that can adapt. I, well, I've been traveling. I will travel to masks, and, I'll, and I feel safe traveling under these conditions. But, but let me ask. I'm going to push you on that yes, because yeah. you know, I, I want to go visit my 87-year-old mom who lives by herself in Alabama, and I feel very uneasy about getting on an airplane and potentially picking up the virus uh, in, in that airplane and, and killing her. She, although she's healthy. She's a healthy 87, thank God. But, you know, I don't feel comfortable enough wearing two masks and goggles. And we have a selfie of you. You've posted it in a fantastic yes, uh, yes. essay on masks. But I, I don't know whether that's going to make it safe for her, for me to come visit. Will it? I think, I mean, I, uh, I've been looking at data. I, 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 again, I don't want to make a statement now. That would go against yeah, what you just yeah. spent an hour talking about, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, data could give you a hint okay, yeah. that uh, data, particularly we have a few cases of people infected who were in a high-volume business, say like a stylist in a salon, yeah. uh, to infected people, and then you know an exposure of 15 minutes or however it takes uh, that led to zero. Uh, contagion. Uh, so we have we have we have enough. Uh, and now we can accumulate studies from meta uh, things that tells us that if you have uh, two masks, and I'm not sure it's necessary to wash your hands, but I would do that anyway and and, and use uh, these things. You should be okay traveling. And, and soon we'll get more data when we examine uh, those of uh, uh, employees who spend a lot of time on airplanes. Well, I find it incredible. Yes, I find it incredible that we don't have those data regularly collected and and no, and discussed. No. And we, it's so important. It's so valuable. No, no, the Chinese, the Chinese are, are are good at collecting stuff. Yeah, Hong Kong. Has, a lot of people have data. It's just like it's not yet put together in a in a way that I'm comfortable discussing. But I'm giving you a hit, enough statistical signals that if I had to go and I have to go to see my slightly younger mother in Lebanon, which um, Entails a much longer exposure. I'm going to hop on a plane. I'm just waiting to get my uh, my for my travel agent to call back. <laughs> See? So I'm going to get on a plane and take that risk. Two masks uh, plus uh, other uh, measures. Actually, Do you drink I use water. Do you drink water. Uh, I don't have to worry about uh, water, but I no. Would but you take the mask careful. off while you're on the plane to drink the water. If you're Seated in a uh, uh, far from other passengers, I, I, the exposure is nonlinear. You see, for a minute or two, it's not gonna, it's not gonna hurt you. Okay, so don't listeners out there do not accept this as medical advice. Uh, exactly, Asim is not a doctor; he only plays one on Econ Talk. Um, no, let, no, let no, me- the, the, the whole thing is, is the other thing. Let, let's talk about doctors, where people think that understanding medicine, which is understanding a, a human, single human, allows you to understand the collective. No, That's another just, scale transformation. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I learned that from you also, Nassim. If you want to figure out how to gamble, don't talk to the carpenter about the wheel. Exactly, built the exactly, roulette wheel, exactly. even though he should be an expert. He built the wheel. How could he not? Who could know more than him? 
Exactly. Um, let's finish by summarizing. What, what, um, let me try to summarize what I hear you're saying for the next pandemic, uh, as well as the rest of this one. Take inexpensive ways to mitigate risks, such as wearing masks. At the national level, close your borders until you figure out what you're dealing with. At the local level, are there things that at the local level ought to be done? Or are those yeah, all going to be mean, at the New York individual? is quarantining people coming from hotspots like Florida and uh, Texas. And Texas, and New York is quarantining them. And also, it's a sort of reaction because Florida was quarantining New Yorkers. Uh, a small little measure like these can't, I mean, you don't need to bring cases to zero. You just want to make sure they don't overwhelm your system and they don't uh that they don't uh, collapse uh, uh i mean they 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 don't collapse your infrastructure you see yeah that's well, more than that and though, then I... also and also that's the first thing and then the other one is if if a pandemic will be imploding just like the 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 plague or the spanish flu naturally when when it uh is uh, i don't believe in herd immunity as much as in uh, uh reduced connectivity so, but I have two more points I'd like to make. Sure. Here. Could I stop you? No, I can't. <laughs> okay. Go ahead, make them. One thing we did not discuss is Gerontocide. Yeah, talk about that. I think I disagree with you on this. So go ahead. Okay. Gerontocide so, is this, the murder of the elderly. Murder of the elderly. Okay. The ancient world not only did not like, uh, did not favor Gerontocide, but to the contrary, they worshiped the elders. They honored them, yeah. They honored them. I mean, the Senate, Senate is a council of elders. Senatus is an old person. Same with, uh, with in the Greek name, and then same in Arabic. The title sheikh, it means old. Hmm. Right, and here we have the word seniority, okay? So, so you're, now you realize that some societies understand the golden rule. Treat me the way you want to be treated. By when you're when you're older and respect that and and we have had and and Mediterranean societies, most of us are issued of these Mediterranean societies. Well, most of the people on this podcast are anyway. Okay, coming from uh, <laughs> this episode, the, the ancient world, the ancient world, people coming from the ancient world, Babylonian, Egyptian, Mediterranean, Greek or Roman, they have values that basically for them, gerontocide is never an option. Never. So would you, would you, would you, would you, would you, if I give you a thousand dollars, you kill your grandfather? Of course not. Now, how about if I gave you a billion? Uh, you know, okay. So that, now let's negotiate. So this is Northwestern European society. Which? Making claims, utilitarian claims, something, someone infected Northern Europe with these, uh, this calculus. Of yeah, no. If we let old people die, it would save us in economic terms. That's not a question that you're allowed to ask in a classical society. It's offensive. No trade -off. I find it there's offensive no trade -off. to me. Yeah, yes, there are trade-offs you don't make, and, and this is also central in our paper. We explained that we tell for the tail risk, you have no trade-off because you know eventually you're going to die. This one, even if you look at it from a utilitarian standpoint, it's not a trade-off because you don't know where it's going to stop. So the idea, and America, the only Northwestern European, sorry, the, uh, not quite Northwestern European, but in population and habits and language, 
that has full uh, age equality, no age discrimination. So, well, if and, more, someone, and more than that, and more than that, we devote an enormous amount of resources and money to the health of the elderly. Exactly, because and, and, and the rationale is that it's not the elderly, it's not a different class. The young people, you got to think ergodically, will be the elderly. They yeah, don't that's think hard for terms. people to notice. Yeah. yeah, okay. So the other thing is, is in other words, we're going to take care of you. So you're telling the young, by taking care of the elderly, I'm, we're going to take care of you. We hope, yeah. Plus, plus there are other things involved in, 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 in this discipline of, of taking care of the elderly, uh, because the, 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 you cannot have both. I mean, capitalism is not about ingratitude. Shouldn't be. You say, yeah. So, the, I mean, the Greeks uh, uh, let the, the mules that were used in building the, 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 the Parthenon, they gave them privileged grounds instead of letting them die because you don't need them anymore. To the contrary, they gave they them privileged ground. They, they honored them. them. They honored them by giving them great ground. To you know, great uh, food and stuff like that. So it was, it was. Uh, there's something. There's a transmission of intergenerational gratitude. Well, I'm I'm going to take that, this. That people don't get. I'm going to take this in a direction maybe you're headed, which is, to me, this is related to your insight of uh, soul in the game, which is that it's. You could argue it's irrational to take care of a donkey or mule. It's just an animal. Uh, especially in ancient times, you could say, "Well, you know, they, yes, they help build the Parthenon, but they're animals. We we could we could let them die." But the idea that you honor everything that is worth honoring, even when it's not quote rational, has a sweet sweet aspect to it. And and you're uh, uh, right now we're looking at you, Sam. You're you're wearing a lovely sport coat and and shirt, and I am confident you are as well dressed. Below the waist as you are above it, because I know that's your motto. You can, you can uh, yeah, you can check. Yeah, see, oh, it's jeans, so, jeans. Well, I, I, I always nice wear look. jeans. No, no, I always <laughs> wear jeans and uh, jeans. Uh, but you don't wear pajamas when you're on Zoom. You no, don't wear pajamas. No, no, I don't. Even when you don't see me, even when I when I when you don't see me, and, and it's uh, I described it in the Black Swan. There's that idea that Visconti, you know, the filmmaker. Uh, when he, he handed the box that contained jewels, mm-hmm. made sure there were jewels inside of it. Yeah, in the movie, when, even though it was just a prop. Yeah, Exactly. It was not, you're not supposed to see them, but it's just like he made sure it was authentic. So there was this idea of being authentic. When you write about something, you don't want to be an imposter. Yeah. You, you want to, when I thought, I mean, you, people may never know that I, I, I could write in Chinese and people may never know that I don't know Chinese. Right. But you can't do it. You cannot. Should never be an imposter. Likewise, I don't like people who write about probability, not knowing it, and then use fortune cookies formulas and verbalistic formula. Particularly, this is present among psychologists. They are fake. It shows. There's something about a fake person. You notice because they will uh, uh, be fake elsewhere. <laughs> you see. Well, I like the idea that that practicing authenticity, even in places where it's not observable, builds a habit that, that will protect you in cases when you might forget and go out in your pajamas to the grocery. So I, th- I think it's a beautiful exactly. idea. Yes, yes. I mean, the whole idea of, of authenticity, and also in fields, like, for example, if you only write about subjects that you didn't discover on uh, Wikipedia, but things that are natural, it doesn't. It looks clumsy a little bit compared to the 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 
the researcher who knows how to fake and write reports, but people detect it. People detect authenticity. My guest today has been Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Nassim, thank you for being Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks again. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.